thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Monday to Friday from 9am. This is Views and News with Clarence Ford. Only on Cape Talk. Dr. Chris Smith, the University of Cambridge, the Naked Scientist. Good morning. Welcome back. Morning, Clarence. How are you? I'm really good. It's a beautiful day in the Mother City, and I believe it's still hot in Europe. Mm, it's not hot here. <laughs> I wish I could say the same. We're having the most oh. miserable summer after last year's scorcher and southern Europe basking in a heat wave. I don't think they're enjoying it, though. It's been absolutely diabolical here, as in temperatures in the sort of teens, and it should be double. I can't say double because temperature's not that kind of scale, but it should be high 20s and it's really really dismal bleak but on the other hand we're so water depleted it's a bit like Cape Town in terms of the amount of water in the ground is so low because we had very low rainfall for many years before last summer's really really low level of rainfall and we just haven't caught up so the fact that we have had a lot of unseasonable rain in the last month or so it has helped to bring things back up to a bit closer to normal but the ground is still very very parched so it's not yeah. it's not all good news for people who want to enjoy a summer holiday but it's good news for nature sure now my colleague lester was was talking to somebody in greece a little earlier uh, and then i read a uh, chile also suffering 37 degrees in the heart of winter uh, they're having a bit of a problem on that side chile and argentina suffering a bit of a heat wave uh, in the middle of winter okay but we've got some questions for you dr smith uh, uh, are you going to shoot with one joe let's go to the voice notes first good morning this is noreen from cape town i've just got a strange question for Dr. Chris, it's to do with boiling water. When you boil water the first time and it cools in the kettle, as some people say, you must throw out the rest of the water and put fresh water to boil it again. And also, if you throw some boiling water into a thermos flask when there's load shedding to have a cup of tea when there's no power, um, can one throw that water back into the kettle to reboil it? What is the issue? Does Does the water take on the metal... Um, character, what's the story? If we boil it again, is it okay to drink? Thanks. Please let me know. Hi, Noreen. Great questions. And the answer is it's absolutely fine to heat water up, cool it down, heat it up. Do that as many times as you like, because if you think about it, when you go to somewhere that has an on-the-wall water boiler where you pull a tap and some water comes out into a cup you hold under that tap, that's exactly what they're doing. A lot of them, some of them do heat a certain amount of water on demand but many have a big reservoir of water that they just keep constantly warm and it's not harmful in any way with the exception that if there was something horrible in there that was leaching into the water someone's put something in there that shouldn't be there then the longer it spends warm loitering in one place obviously it could pick up something so putting that to one side nothing is going to change about the characteristic of the water except you're going to rob the water of some of its hardness. And this is the stuff that causes lime scale. It's the stuff that gives drinking water its... We regard it as quite pleasant taste, and we all need calcium and minerals. You will remove some of the mineral content by continuously reboiling uh, the water. So 
it may affect the flavour a small amount, but in terms of its use, utility and its safety, no problem whatsoever. Really good idea to boil the water, chuck it in the flask, and then water being the precious commodity that it is, put it back in the kettle and heat it up again. I do it all the time, actually, at home. Let's go to another voice, though. Plenty in this morning. Keep them coming via WhatsApp at 072. It's because we read the right act last week, Clarence, when we said, look, Indeed. don't wait till the last minute. Get in early. Everyone's keen now. I think we're going to have another 20 for next week after this <laughs> week. But uh, it's that Good morning. I would like to know how a colony of bees remembers a person that could have attacked their hive and how they pass on that information. How do they explain to each other uh, who you, you are and how, if they only live for six days, how is this information carried on for so long? This is Anthony McBurn Clippeville. Thank you. Anthony, I'm, I'm not sure that bees remember individuals for prolonged periods of time. And if I'm wrong, if there are any uh, apiculturists, do let me know that I'm misguided. Bees certainly do attack en masse, and certain colonies are troublesome. And usually it's because they've got a weak or an, an elderly queen who is not keeping control of her brood very well. As queens age, they secrete fewer and fewer pheromones which are the chemicals that ooze through the colony and affect the behavior of the bees so you can end up with quite aggressive bees some bees just by virtue of breeding are more aggressive than others and once one bee locks onto a target what it can do is impregnate that target with a pheromone or a smell which is an alarm pheromone which tells other bees home in on this like heat-seeking missiles and go for it too. So usually you have to get stung or there has to be a discharge of, of the sting of the bee for that to happen. And then once that smell is on you, you are a bee line, excuse the pun, for other bees in that colony who've gone into attack mode. Our home's at threat, under threat. Someone's trying to break in, let's ward them off. And then the bees will go at you following that smell, being further alarmed by that smell until you retreat out of the way. I don't think they have a memory for you specifically, though. As I say, I might be wrong. Bees do have good memories, though, and they can even do maths. And scientists have shown that bees can learn by watching other bees, including there was a lovely story from, I think it was Queen Mary University of London, Lars Chitka and his team in, in recent years had bees that were watching bees kick a ball into a goal and they learned to do this by watching other bees doing it they were also able to demonstrate that bees can count so as bees fly past a certain number of targets to reach a particular food reward they could learn how how to count up to say four or five quite easily before they got to a target and when bees are guiding each other to a food source, for example, they do this thing called a waggle dance. So a, a bee which has found a rich source or rich supply of food will come back to the hive, and in the hive there is a dance floor, effectively, where the bees do this figure of eight waggle dance, where the number of wiggles and waggles tells bees which direction to fly in relative to the sun and for how long to find the source of food and this spreads through the hive and more and more bees go and find that source of food and bring back the information and share that too so bees are very good at communication they're very good at communication visually but also chemically and uh, and, and, and they use smells in order to find things which are either good or in the case of you trying to nick their honey potentially bad uh, a message in from simpiwe it reads uh, i recently watched a documentary about deep sea diving this included the scientists using bait to catch some of the creatures in the deep sea for study. Could you please ask the naked scientist about the ethics of this? Should the deep sea not be left alone? 
Well, some conservationists argue that we should just leave everything alone, certainly in some parts of the world. And and there is an increasing movement to try and safeguard more and more of the ocean because traditionally the oceans, despite occupying 75% of the planet's surface and are home to some very diverse, very exciting, very important species where their only opportunity for survival is, is that ocean, we have regarded it as a free-for-all. And this is partly because land is governed by rules that are controlled and dictated by countries that occupy that land, but the oceans are not controlled in the same way. So there is a movement to try to have safeguards for certain patches of the ocean and, and leave them be. But we have never been very good as a species at saying, let's just leave things alone. Let's not make a quick buck from that source. Let's go and exploit it. And the problem is that we tend to be, as a, as a, as a sort of civilization. we tend to be of the mindset that we seek forgiveness rather than permission. We don't make a case to do something and then find out... Um, maybe maybe it's a bad idea let's not do it we tend to do it demonstrate that it's destructive and then we make a case not to do it anymore meanwhile we've made a mess and unfortunately that is what we're doing everywhere including in the ocean and one of the more worrying things about ocean exploitation is that we have exploited many of the things on land which are easy to get at in terms of mining minerals and so on many of these deposits in the ocean which were previously deep out of reach very expensive, preclusively so, to access because of the costs of now getting to more and more resources on land because we've had all the easy, cheap ones. We're going for minerals and so on that are found at sea and this is disturbing ecosystems and so on at sea in ways that we just have no idea because we haven't done this before, we haven't done any proper research and as a result, if we just do this, we could really upset the apple cart. So many people are very concerned and they're justifiably saying we really do need to have better safeguards for the marine realm question in and shane is hoping that there's a scientific explanation for the reason uh or why um, americans drive on the right hand side and the english drive on the left hand side is there one at all yes um the english are right and the americans are wrong <laughs> no there, there are there are a number of countries that do drive on the left and south africa is one of them and i feel very at home whenever i come to south africa because I th- i'm driving on the right side of the road on the left yeah, so there's 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 no kind of reason or, or, or no, yeah, it, it was it was uh, a legacy. I, I, it's just a legacy of where the British Empire was, and um, as one of the early major adopters slash producers slash developers of cars, and with a lot of territories at its uh, kind of beck and call around the world. The UK was exporting cars all over the place and other vehicles and the convention was, well, what do they do in the mother country? Let's do the same. And so many of those places have stuck. Japan drives on the left. You can feel very at home in Japan, not not a former colony or anything, but they also just decided that's the way they're going to do it. There are some very daredevil countries that used to drive on the left, decided they fancied being in with the majority because the majority do drive on the right and had a switchover period where they said, right, from this date, everyone's driving on the right. And amazingly, there weren't more catastrophic car accidents than there were. Fascinating. Uh, we've got a voice note in. Let's take a listen, Joe. Good morning, Clarence. Hope you're well. Uh, and good morning, uh, Dr. Chris Smith. Quick question. What causes fire? For example, how does wood burn? Is that a release of energy or what causes fire? Uh, it's Jason here from Brackenfell. Hi, Jason. Well, the answer is that fire really is the product of a triangle of things. One of them is a fuel source. The other is an oxidizer that can turn that fuel into 
other products. And the third element in the triangle is heat. And when you chuck a log on the fire, the log is made of various molecules and polymers, carbon, cellulose, and that kind of thing, alcohols in there. When you heat it, you get to a point where you begin to liberate from the wood bits of the molecules, the, the polymers, and those bits can then be oxidised by the oxygen in the air and produce carbon dioxide, some carbon monoxide and a few other smuts and partially burned hydrocarbons which go up the chimney, a smoke. So basically when you are burning something, you are releasing a vapour from the fuel. The vapour is mixing with the oxygen in the air and a high enough temperature that the activation energy, in other words, the, the energy that's got to be given to drive the molecules together hard enough so the reaction can happen, this occurs and it leads to the oxidation of that fuel source. So fire and flames, when they're licking around, what you're seeing is very hot vapour reacting. That's what a flame is. And the reason you can see the flame at all is because some of those vapours and chemicals which are coming out of the fuel are themselves when they get excited releasing light of a certain wavelength which is why a gas ring burns blue for example because some of the molecules the carbon to oxygen bond has a blue color and that's why you see blue light when you chuck a log on the fire you see some of those blues and purples because of carbon monoxide as well but also some of the alcohols and other things have certain colors but there's carbon in there the smoke the carbon particles also get very hot and they glow with an orange colour, which is why the flames look orange. And uh, this question for the naked scientist, I find that not infrequently I am I'm physically comfortable while out and about, but I need the toilet when I get home. Is this common? Why is this? Asks Peter in Pinelands. Hello, Peter in Pinelands. The answer is it's mind over bladder. The way we store up urine, we, we have a bladder because that way we can store urine, which is produced at about one milliliter per minute. Your kidneys are churning out roughly one mil per minute of urine and they dump it down tubes called ureters, which are plumbed into your bladder, which is in your pelvis. And the bladder is a big muscular bag and it undergoes receptive relaxation. What that means is you allow the muscles to stretch and stretch without any kind of resistance up to a point so that you can accommodate this one milliliter per minute of urine flowing in. It'll, it'll go down, obviously, if you're more dehydrated, but in normal circumstances, about one milliliter per minute. And once the bladder gets to a threshold size, it begins to activate stretch receptors in the wall of the bladder that are saying to the nervous system, we're getting towards full now. Uh, it's a good idea to go and look for a lavatory. But like all these things... The brain and the nervous system works a bit like, a, uh, I suppose, a debate where you've got one side shouting one thing and one side shouting another and you can out-shout people depending upon the circumstances. So the nerves that are saying it's getting kind of full down here might be shouted out and drowned out by the nerves that are saying, I'm out and about. It's not convenient to feel the urge to go for a wee now. Whereas when the context changes and you are indoors and within easy reach of a toilet where you could empty your bladder, now the distractions, the voices that were saying you can't go to the loo right now, they're being drowned out by the stretch receptors from the bladder saying it's getting towards full, we need to empty the bladder. And when that wins the argument, then it starts to send signals down to the wall of the bladder, which begins to contract and put the pressure up. And this then applies more pressure to the stretch receptors 
and to the sphincter, which is holding the urine in, and that then adds to the argument saying, come on, we really need to go to the loo. And if there's no strong case to be made in the brain for not going to the loo, because you're within e- easy reach of a loo, you then go to the toilet and you empty your bladder. So it's it's all about the psychology plus a healthy helping of physiology and, and neuroscience. And now we're going to go to the WhatsApp line, and we still have a couple of minutes left. If you have a question, maybe able to squeeze it in, this voice note through that number. Hi, Dr. Chris Smith. It's Jill here. Why is there a fridge light and not a freezer light? <laughs> that's, that's got to be the question of the week, hasn't it? Um, I think the reason is that it's to do with frequency. How often do we go diving, delving around in the freezer relatively infrequently for one thing that we usually know where it is? The freezer's smaller, so we normally go in there and I'm after the mints or I'm after the burgers, I'm after the sausages. So you know what you're going for and you're going in there once. The fridge, you're in and out of the fridge a lot. The fridge is bigger. It tends to have lots of different things in it stacked all over the place. And in the case of our fridge at home, thanks to having a busy family, loads of stuff that probably should have been thrown away ages ago you've got to sort through. So I think it's there for convenience. And the fact that because we've always done that, dogmatically, we continue to put lights in fridges because people expect them to be there. And they think the fridge is broken if there isn't one. And uh, we have another voice note in. Let's take a listen, Joe. Hi, Clarence. Ed in retreat here. I'm getting my question in early for the Naked Scientist. Woo-hoo. On Monday, as I was leaving home, I managed to catch with my little cell phone camera the perfect shot of the full moon rolling down the hill. This morning, leaving at very much the same time, I looked up and the moon is in a completely different place. So I can't believe I've never thought about it before, but, you know, here we are. And then I thought, well, what is the relationship in the difference of positioning with with moonrise and moonset and whatever? So I'm sitting here looking at a table of the moonrise and moonset for the week, uh, but the increment in the in the time difference doesn't seem to be um, the same uh, per day. So it's like anywhere between like 46 minutes and I think the smallest one might have been under half an hour difference in the time so um yeah please could uh you explain that to me in very small words yeah and it was a pretty beautiful beautiful full conspicuous moon this past week I wish I'd seen that. We've had some lovely lovely moons this week um, one of my favorite poems ever is uh, Alfred Noyes the highwayman and it opens with the lines, the moon was a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas. And I learned this when I was at school. And it's and, and Anne of Green Gables, she recites this and wins a poetry competition. And I, I'm so pleased that she recited my favourite poem of all time because it's just such a beautiful metaphor, that one. But the, the way the moon works, in inverted commas, is that the moon is in orbit around the Earth. So the moon is going around the planet... At the same time, the planet is turning inside the orbit of the moon. The moon goes very slowly around the Earth. It's not whizzing round like Mercury around the sun. It's going around our planet quite slowly. It takes a month for the moon to go from one starting position and complete a complete lap of the planet. And the Earth is turning inside, doing its 24-hour rotation, inside that moon going round. 
So you've got one thing turning in, turning itself inside another thing that's turning. A moonrise and moonset happens in the same way that sunrise and sunset happens because the Earth turns, and as the Earth turns, it, you see the surface of the moon come up, go across the sky and go down again because the Earth has turned, and it's turned relative to that point the moon's at in the sky that day. And then the moon carries on, so the next day it's a bit further around on its orbit, so the Earth then turns around, and where the moon rises the next day, because it's a bit further around on its orbit, it's slightly different in terms of timing for the Earth, which is turning around, compared to where it was the previous day. And this is why tides change, and every day the tide, because the moon is making us have high tides, is also contributing to spring tides, but that's slightly different, we're having high tides an hour later each day or thereabouts because the moon has gone round on this circle and the and the moon is further round relative to the surface of the earth each day on its journey to take about 28 days to complete that lap and therefore you will see the moon doing its full moon thing during the daytime sometimes and then the next time it later on in the year it'll be a full moon at night for example so this is this is because of these phases of the moon because the earth is turning but the moon is making a journey across around on its own orbit by small increments taking about 28 days to do it and we're going to have to rest it there, Dr. Chris Smith, Chair of Science at the University of Cambridge, the Naked Scientist. Every Friday, a couple of questions we could not get to, unfortunately. We all, we'll hold them over. Uh, I've missed most of the Naked Scientist. Will he be on podcast? Of course, yes. Go to cavetalk.co.za. Right now, the time is 10 o'clock exactly. And Lindsay Dentlinger standing by with Eyewitness News. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.